and welcome to our podcast about ending gender-based violence in universities and colleges. I'm Ruth Lewis and I'm from Northumbria University in the northeast of England. And I'm Susan Marine from Merrimack College in the United States outside of Boston. Together, Susan and I have been working on the problem of gender-based violence in higher education for several years. We've just published an edited book called Collaborating for Change, Transforming Cultures to End Gender-Based Violence in Higher Education. The book prioritizes activism amongst students, faculty and staff working in universities and in community organizations. For more information on the book and the work we're discussing in this podcast, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com. For now, on with the show. We're really delighted to have here with us today, Professor Catherine Donovan from the University of Durham, where she's Professor of Sociology. And Catherine and colleagues wrote a chapter for the book, Collaborating for Change. And the title of their chapter is Feminist Activism Among Academic Staff in the Movement to Address Gender-Based Violence on Campus. So Catherine wrote that chapter with Khadija Chantler, Rachel Fenton and Kelly Bracewell, all colleagues here in the UK. And it's a really fascinating chapter about some of the activism that faculty or academic staff are involved in at their own institutions to address gender-based violence. So, Catherine, would you start us off by giving us a bit of the context for this work in the UK? So, you know, what what kind of things are going on in universities in the UK around gender-based violence? And particularly, why is the Universities UK report that you refer to in your piece so significant? And perhaps you could also say something about the catalyst funding. I suppose what led to the Universities UK report was the, I think a pivotal moment was the NUS survey of women's students around their experiences of sexual violence and harassment. That came out in 2011 and and they also subsequently did reports on homobia and transphobia for students on campus and racism on campus. And I think that kind of series of reports built a case that there were too many students facing an unsafe education at the university with too many impacts for their health and their well-being, their education, their futures. Public Health England had also commissioned the University of the West of England to explore the feasibility of an active bystander programme looking at sexual violence, sexual harassment. And they did a kind of literature review of looking at what 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 works, I suppose. And they also then designed a programme, an active bystander programme that was made available freely on the website that they that they were offering to universities to use. And that started in 2013. So there was kind of a growing awareness that there was a problem, the research was starting to be done, and then I suppose the activism, what, what can be done about it, was was starting. So the Universities UK report, and the title is, you know, Violence Against Women and Girls, sorry, Violence Against Women, Hate and Harassment, and the, but the, the, the title is called Changing the Culture, so it's very ambitious, it's very radical in some ways, in terms of its ambition for change changing the campus, changing the university. And of course we're way behind the USA. So there's there's stuff there that 
um, we could learn from and and like with the with the bystander program or the the intervention as, as it's called now that the that the University of the West of England developed that needed to also be changed to be culturally appropriate and legally appropriate and all of those things so the report the universities uk report which the universities uk is in it is in this kind of an association of professional association of all the universities so it's got some clout in the sector and they drew on the evidence from the nus studies and other work that had been done but also on the work of the intervention initiative and they provided a list of recommendations about what universities could do to address the issues which as i said were violence against women hate and harassment i suppose it's worth saying that in just briefly that in the uk hate is is refers to the legal protection of five protected characteristics so or the opportunity to give an enhanced sentence if a crime is proven so the protected characteristics are race faith disability sexuality and transgender identity interestingly not misogyny although there is a bill isn't there coming um, to parliament in the in the autumn so we'll see but the report then set out uh, a list of recommendations that the H higher education sector is expected to implement that deal broadly with prevention monitoring recording provision of early intervention services and um, policy and disciplinary procedures so quite far-reaching in this kind of ambition to to change the culture and then following the the publication of the report in 2016 the higher education funding council for england or hefke as it was called it's now called the office for students they provided two years of funding to act as a catalyst for unities for, sorry for universities to get on with implementing those recommendations and the fund was called, not surprisingly, the Catalyst Fund. And in its first year, the focus was on violence against women, and in the second, it was on hate. So I suppose in the first year, really, the focus was on sexual violence and harassment. And I won some funding under that to trial an active bystander, taster, and 10 week programme, which wanted to tackle all of the agenda of the Universities UK report, so violence against women, sexual violence, sexual harassment, hate and harassment. So, and at our dissemination event, I met up with Katija, who I did already know, Rachel Fenton, who is the lead on the Internet Intervention Initiative, and Callie Bracefoot, while I was all also there. And Katija, Rachel and I talked about our experience of working in this area i suppose and of the catalyst fund and what we saw as the problems so that it was too short-lived it wasn't rigorous enough in expecting that the initiative would be the basis for active bystander interventions given that it had been based on empirical the gathering of empirical evidence so it was an evidence-based design but some universities were using online programs or programs that haven't been evaluated. We also knew through our networks that there were problems when there wasn't enough institutional support uh, from senior management. The role ethics committees seem to be playing in undermining research. So we 
this was kind of our experience, a mix of our experience and anecdotal experience. So then we decided that maybe we could do a survey and try to capture some of that um, and do some follow-up interviews to see how universities were experiencing having access to the Catalyst Fund and implementing those uh, recommendations. So, yeah. Maybe that's a very long journey, but yes, that's how we that's how we got involved in the survey, and it came directly from that report. That is really helpful for giving us the context. So it was in that context that your research study took place. Can you describe briefly the research study and what your aims were in conducting it? Yeah, so we we decided we would do a survey and that we would use the kind of framework of the report so that we would ask about monitoring and um, support, the institutional support and funding and sustainability, and that we would ask for people to volunteer to take part in interviews so that we, we kind of aimed at maybe getting 10 or 15 and in the end 25 People asked if they could take part, so we accommodated all of those from different parts of the university, actually, not just uh, academic or faculty staff, but also staff from support services, uh, students' unions, counselling services. So quite a good range of different people took part in the interviews. Um, but yeah, with the with the survey, we were just wanted to to get a kind of general sense of where people were at in implementing the recommendations and what kind of research they were doing to kind of evaluate or whether they had any baseline climate survey data in for their own institutions, that kind of thing, and what kinds of barriers and facilitators they thought existed in implementing the recommendations. Catherine, can you talk a little bit about the framework that you engaged in your chapter? So you talk about these kind of three facets of, of feminist praxis, which you describe as research, political lobbying, and activism. It would be great to hear a little bit about why these three are kind of your uh, triumvirate and how they fit together. Sort of help us understand what praxis is and why it matters. It's, it's almost like you can't talk about feminism without talking about activism. That 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 just seems to be that they that that is. I mean, I think in the chapter we say, you know, to talk about the project of feminine feminism is to is to wrongly present it as a kind of as a consensus about what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. And then of course that that isn't the case. Um, there's a, there's a lot going on under project feminism. But certainly there is stuff going on. It isn't something that is just being talked about or read about or written about. It is something that is being done. And that, that is praxis. It's, it's the kind of the bringing together of the thinking around why, why are these problems there? Uh, what needs to be done? And then the doing of it. And so those three kind of ingredients, for want of a better word, seem to be present in all the descriptions and discussions about what feminism do. Praxis is central to it. So whether whatever subject you're looking at, whether it's sexual harassment or reproductive rights or the education of girls, those elements are there. So listening to the voices or 
giving voices to the oppressed, so gathering the evidence, doing the research, the scholarship, agitating for social change based on that knowledge uh, through through activism, so that raises awareness or consciousness raising, publicly naming the problem, drawing attention to it, uh, demanding change, non-violent direct action, you know, all of those things that are about activism. And then lobbying, we're kind of taking that agenda to the powerful, wherever they are, whoever they are, to argue for transform, transformative change, you know, the kind of systemic activism that's needed for transformative change. So so those are the three ingredients that really leapt out at, at us when we were thinking about the, the chapter we wanted to write. And, and also is what came across in the uh, academics faculty accounts for those three things were there were absolutely there in what they were doing so uh, and they are interlinked because even though we separated them just for the sake of uh, of being able to discuss the the particularities about the three i think we we were trying to make the case that research itself is an activist is an is an act of activism but when you're looking at something in an institution and the institution doesn't want you to look there. So, so as soon as you're doing that, it's, it's a political project and, and it inevitably involves activism. And so research becomes activism. And for me, th those are the things that are, that are absolutely central to praxis. So the intersecting practices of producing knowledge and implementing change based on that knowledge that are so central to feminism. In that praxis that describes activism, the activism is very often challenging the power. Arguably, it's always about challenging the power of, of elites, of dominant um, forces. So can you Tell us a bit about what your participants said about the operation of power, how, how power operated in universities to block or to enable work around gender-based violence. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I'm not sure whether we say it exactly like this in the chapter, but there is something about large institutions, large organisations and the, and the, there's power in the inertia of a large institution that can hold things up. Uh, but it's not just inertia because actually what it's doing is protecting the status quo. So again, you know you're up against power when what people want to do is stay the same, but they don't want to listen to the knowledge. They don't want to look at the evidence and, um, or they'll look at the evidence, but they don't want to look at the implications of that evidence. So there's something about the size of an organisation that really lends itself to inertia, being able to hold up, hold up change or conversely protect the status quo. So the power that's embedded in committees that are able to kick things into the long grass and the, the processes for introducing and implementing institutional change that sometimes feel opaque. It, you know, you just, you just can't even understand how decisions are taken, even though you were in that meeting, you, it, and it, and it still seemed to happen around you or 
or realizing that there are really key people that um, that make things happen or conversely sit on things and that they are often men, not exclusively, but they're often men who are able to be in those positions of power that can block or or unblock. And so conversely then having a senior manager or an executive manager who's willing to champion an agenda like this is crucial to being able to 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 cut through that that kind of committee structure that just is kind of mirror and lights um, and and can make you feel quite small and uh, you know really in the overwhelmed by the 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 notion of being able to make change things that we didn't expect are, are things like ethics committees which we you, you know we kind of uh, i would have thought that ethics committees were were absolutely the place where the interests of participants to research and sometimes people carrying out the research would be the absolute interest but we found examples where actually the interests of the institution were being prioritized so that aversion to institutional risk or risks to institutions reputations is probably the better way of saying it and again slowing things down asking for things to be changed wanting to see draft after draft you know all of those kinds of things that slow it down so that you lose the energy or the time passes or you're now in a different part of the academic year when doing that piece of work will work as well as when you planned it to do and um that kind of just hinders it delays it changes it so much that it's not the research that you wanted to do that's another kind of um barrier it wasn't only ethics committees that that were sensitive to institutional risk, that perception of that if you do research that tells you that some of your students are experiencing sexual violence, that that will mean that students won't come to university. And Alison Phipps has written about this, and the marketization of higher education and the impact of that on um, universities being less or more willing to, to deal with gender-based violence when you're fearing that you're not going to be able to provide a, an attractive product in an attractive, uh, what do we call universities in that analogy of they're a shop, I don't know, we're selling services, we're selling degrees. So yeah, that kind of impact on, on institutions that are having to think more and more about business um, and, and that that gets in the way of being able to to consider the the interests, the broader health and well-being and political interests of of your students. On the other hand, what we also learned is that people do navigate those uh, processes and committees of power. They do challenge the inertia. They do challenge those uh, research committees that want to block research. They're tenacious. And uh, so there's power in individuals and groups to be tenacious and to lobby and to return to the table again and again to keep raising the issues, to keep bringing the evidence, to keep pointing to the solutions, building alliances across universities, not just within 
um, groups of faculty or academic staff, but also with students, with the support services, the willingness to be a feminist activist, to kind of draw on those skills, that knowledge about how, how it is possible to get things done, and the willingness of many of our participants to do work unpaid on top of the rest of the work, to volunteer, to respond to invitations to be part of university task and finish groups or steering groups or getting invited into meetings, kind of identifying how power is operating and finding ways to influence the decisions, to change the perceptions. Yeah, I suppose that kind of tenacity and uh, willingness to, to carry on doing the work regardless, kind of waiting, building the evidence, picking the moment, all of those things can be powerful and, and successful in transforming institutions. So to that note, Catherine, um, one of the things you talk about in your chapter that we found so interesting was the ways that the participants in your study took kind of their own time, um, their personal energy and labor, and invested it in creating interventions on their campuses, even uh, or often when they weren't, they, they weren't paid or compensated or this wasn't part of their official workload. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of those interventions were and perhaps what you think motivated these um, activists to engage in this work, even though it isn't part of their job. Yeah, I mean, what motivates them is the, their feminism, their, their commitment to social change. And, and some of them had kind of personal experience, either in their own lives or in their own students' lives of the experiences of sexual violence or sexual harassment as students. So there was a kind of another classic feminist understanding of the personal being being political and so wanting to make change because that's the right thing to do, but also wanting to make the change because you don't want other people to experience what you know either yourself has experienced or those students uh, or colleagues that you've been talking to has experienced. So. The motives are are political and they're, I would say, feminist uh, because of that. The kinds of things that they do are just such a range. I mean, using theatre groups to bringing in theatre groups to raise awareness with students about consent, doing research, unfunded baseline climate surveys or evaluating interventions, consent workshops. Doing, uh, one of the participants that we interviewed had, had, they'd done, they'd written a kind of insert that would go into the welcome pack of each fresher that was, as, as the participant said, kind of written colloquially that was about, you're away from home, you might, you know, it's really exciting, you might have sex and you might get into your first relationship. It can be a bit confusing. These are the things to think about. So just very kind of personable, accessible, writing to to students that they would have in their welcome pack about what what could happen what they might need help with and where where to seek help and that's that's a huge change isn't it from having nothing for students to having something in every first year pack that they're gonna they're gonna get that letter encouraging the university to work in partnership with local rape crisis centers or women's aid and getting those groups in those those experts in the field in to do disclosure training 
or uh, to speak to students, working, getting the police in to, to speak to students or um, in, in other ways to try and provide services, developing different kinds of bystander interventions, most of which were influenced by the intervention initiative, but uh, were kind of adapted or amended to the institution or to the group of students or to the time that um, they had to, to provide them. So one of our participants had developed a bystander intervention program for two degree programs and they had a bit of money and they had a, a research assistant who was helping them with that and then they were trying to convince the university on the basis of the results of the evaluation that it should be rolled out and they had interest from other departments that they wanted the program to be to be rolled out there and the university was just really being slow about coming up with any decision about whether there would be a resource or whether there wouldn't be a resource and then what they decided to do in the end was that they would train people in those other departments to provide the the active bystander program themselves so they did that so that was already something that they hadn't bargained on doing but they thought no this would be a good way kind of a legacy sustainability and the uh, people who went on the program were, were pleased that they'd done the program but they were still too unconfident to run it so they were having a dilemma about what do they do because if they they then did run it with them then the university sees that they can do it without the resource but if they don't do it then they're losing this opportunity to roll the program out and in the end they decided to to do it with the with the programs uh, and co-led those active bystander programs so you're making those kinds of decisions uh, if you're in this work in institutions in universities then you are making those kinds of decisions about whether if you say no, what what do you what are you saying no to? You're not just you're not only refusing to do something that's not being recognised, but the impact of doing that is feels on balance to be a worse option. So you get pulled into doing more and more, which of course people do voluntarily in a in a positive way because they want to see the change, but it does take its toll, of course. You really speak, Catherine, to all the work that's involved in uh, fighting gender-based violence in campuses, you know, both in terms of predominantly women faculty and academic staff and other non-academic staff responding to people who've experienced abuse. You know, those, those people are most likely to seek out women, often feminist women or just understanding compassionate women. And then the work that we do on top of that to try to bring about institutional change and and as you've so eloquently said most of this goes unrecognized is on top of full workloads it is very very clearly a form of activism in itself isn't it i think so and i i mean i do also think and I, i've thought this when i've done research on domestic violence in, in kind of mainstream society that you you cannot underestimate the the importance of the individual champion um, who is prepared to do that and and not always I don't mean necessarily always working as an individual but the person who is willing to to, to take it on and, and be the lead and and that especially when they if they're in a position of structural power how much of a difference that 
can make. And, and not all of our participants were in, in terms of hierarchy in the university, very senior, but they did have the kind of structural power, I suppose, from having, from having a full time permanent position that is very different to, to people who are in casual contracts or fixed term contracts, short term contracts. So there's, there's, there's something about that as well. But having, having individual people willing to do the work is absolutely fundamental. And, and then their, their ability to build alliances and build collectives of people willing to do the work in their own areas to make, to make it work institutionally. So I, I wonder, Catherine, if you could say a little bit more about how, when activists who are doing this kind of work come together and work through solution spaces together, how do we approach that intersectionally? Um, you talked a little bit in your chapter about some of the challenges around that, but what is it that's challenging about making sure that we're conscious of and attending to identity difference and particularly power around identity difference um, in the process of generating solutions together? What's challenging about that and how does that work? Yeah, how long have we got? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been watching Mrs. America. I don't know if you have, but I've been watching that series. And what I have been so taken by is, so it's a, it's a, a series based on the 1970s and when the Equal Rights Amendment was trying to be, the, the women's liberation movement in America were trying to get it ratified. They had to get them ratified in so many states within seven years. And uh, there's right wing women's group led by Phyllis Schlafly, who who is equally adamant that they're not going to ratify it. And what I think they've done brilliantly in the series is show not like crudely, and, but really implicitly in everything that happens, how much compromise is central to to this kind of work and where people are willing to compromise and the extent to which, if you talk about institutions, I mean, they're, they're looking at societal change, political change, but if you look at it in a university, how much can you be transformed from within? How, how much is that possible? And to what extent are the compromises or do the compromises slowly feel like they're corrupting us? And I think that that in in the series, they the compromises are around race and sexuality, same as it ever was, in terms of the kind of the critiques that there are of of feminism being problematically often speak into the needs of white heterosexual middle class women and and how how do we how do we try to to stop that from happening in the first place which is seems to be the key doesn't it instead of trying to think how do we how do we change that how do we just stop it from happening and and that's that is really at the heart of it of how much can we try to involve an intersectional approach right from the beginning. And I'm not sure even when I, and I'm part of this research team, I'm not sure how much we were successful in doing that. 
you know, one of us in the team is a lesbian, one of us identifies as a person of colour. So it was an intersectional team, and I'm not sure how successful we were in beginning that project as an intersectional facing project. So the way we wrote about the survey, the 2016 report, so we looked at the report and it said, it says violence against women, hate and harassment. And in the survey, we talked about sexual violence and harassment. And what's really interesting is when you look at how people talk to us and responded to us, they were talking about women as victims and they were talking about men as perpetrators. So the, the problem is already constructed as a heterosexual problem of heterosexual men for heterosexual women. So that, so that's the framework that we, that we were part of setting up ourselves. That didn't stop participants talking about the need to ensure that anybody who's victimized by sexual violence and sexual harassment should be able to expect to receive the same uh, respectful response from the institution regardless of their sexuality, their gender identity, their their race or ethnicity, whether they're disabled or not. Um, so so people did talk about that. But I am very mindful how the problem is set up from the beginning, informed how people responded to us and how they spoke to us about that. So that I've learned from that and it's really made me reflect on it, the fact that you have that question for me to to answer. But I do think increasingly there is an understanding that it isn't good enough to only be talking about women or men as if they are homogenous groups and that 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 is something that we shouldn't be compromising around and that we should be finding different ways to talk about the problems that are, like like has been done in the book calling it gender-based violence is absolutely one of the ways that, that we need to go when we're when we're trying to think about how to frame the problem as well as thinking through then how do we how do we explore the problem and who do we ask whose accounts count in the in the exploration of what needs to be done to change the situation. So I think a lot of our participants were keenly aware of intersecting identities i'm not sure the extent to which the way we framed it brought that out in the way that we could have if if we had given more thought to it continuing on that idea about power and inequality one of the things that i've noticed around gender-based violence certainly in uk universities is that the activism we tend to hear about is the activism that's happening in the elite institutions. And I wonder if you and the team noticed any differences between the sorts of things that the academic and other staff were doing in elite universities and in non-elite universities. And of course, you've got experience, Catherine, of, of both kinds of institutions. So overall, do you see differences in terms of activism against gender-based violence in elite and non-elite institutions? Well, in the survey, we did have some significant differences between, we, we grouped them as pre-92 and post-92. So 
in the British context, what were called polytechnics, were able to apply to become universities. A big bunch of them did that in 1992. So, and there's a real difference between the, those two sets of institutions because polytechnics were primarily teaching institutions. So they spent many, the, the expectation was you spent many more of your working hours doing teaching or prepare, preparing for teaching and far less expectation that you would do research. My experience of a post 92 university is that they were delighted that I did research and they were even more delighted that I did it in my own time. And partly that was structural response to the reality of not having that record of research and relying for most of our income on students. How many, how many students we had? So yeah, so those, those are the two groups. And the, the two um, differences that jumped out in relation to this conversation that I thought was worth sharing was that the participants from post-1992 universities were significantly more likely to report having to challenge the perceptions in their universities that the University UK recommendations are not a priority for them. So that's quite interesting. Sorry to jump in, but effectively, yeah, yeah, the, what you might think of as the non-elite universities, are, if I've understood you correctly, having to assert the significance of gender-based violence and assert the fact that the universities themselves have a responsibility around it. Yeah. Yeah. And then conversely, the participants from pre-1992 universities were significantly less likely to report having problems getting senior management buy-in than the participants from post-1992 universities. So there's kind of two halves of the same coin, isn't it? Post-92 are trying to significantly more likely having to make the case. And the pre-1992 are not having to make the case. And they're finding it easier to get senior management buy-in to the problem. So there's, that's, that's quite an interesting set of findings, I think, in relation mm. to this. What's that about? What's that about? Is it because the post-92 universities are much more marketized and much more having to think about the potential impact of reputational risk on getting the students to come to the universities? It's possible. That that might explain some of that difference. Certainly reflects the activism amongst students too, doesn't it? So that in the pre ninety two yeah. universities, yeah. the elite universities, students seem to be much more active on the topic of gender based violence and probably lots of other forms of uh, social justice movements in comparison to the newer universities, which are less elite, have fewer resources, and where, as you've said, the the staff are having to uh, assert gender-based violence as an issue for the university to address. So some really interesting class-based and resource and reputation and status-based intersecting factors there. Yeah, yeah and, I, and, and the role of the student union possibly as well. So I know in my post-92 university, there was no students' union. And the students were much more likely to be traveling long distances to come to the university. So there was less of a kind of campus feel of belonging to a campus. And the old universities, I think, especially kind of campus based universities, have literally got the geography of a, a campus, um, but also have got that kind of 
more sense of belonging, I wonder, through students' unions and student union activities. So that would make them be more likely to have another lobbying voice that's saying there's a problem here. Yeah. It, it really reveals the diversity within even just the UK's higher education landscape. Yeah. So in, you know, when we look at America, at Canada, at other European countries, at, you know, other countries around the globe, the connections, the similarities between some university and staff experience in the UK might really fit with some of those other institutions. There might be more diversity within a country um, than there is between countries. Yeah. That's really interesting. Thinking about your participants' reports, and your analysis of those reports. What have you and the team learned about what faculty, academic staff can most helpfully do to, to address institutional policy and practice and culture? You know, are there areas where, where you've been able to identify that is most useful for staff to give their energies? In lots of ways, I kind of think people need to play to their strengths. Because I think there's there's work to be done in in lots of different areas. So there's uh, the academic staff, faculty staff can can be involved in because there's there is the research obviously, and that's one of their strengths. But because you also have to be able to you have to be interested in or good at how big institutions work and uh, understanding how power is operating, where and who make the decisions what committees you need to be a member of or what committee do you need to ask to do a presentation to or to, to get the evidence, to get the knowledge um, um, on the table, on the agenda, how to uh, recruit allies from different parts of the university, how the committee processes work, um, the extent to which providing solutions might help or hinder. So one of our participants that, that we refer to in the, in the book chapter she definitely felt that bringing solutions was would would help that they that they would cleverly pull together what needed to be done in kind of doable suggestions of what what could be done and then bring that with her as she called it their lobby group to the institutional processes that it needed to be taken to I mean, for her as well, timing, she, she thought timing was important because they were putting together their demands, as she called them, around the same time that the university's UK task force was being put together. So those institutions who had an eye to that were thinking, oh, we should get ahead of the game. We should be, you know, we should, be, we could be seen to be doing something here. We might get some kudos here from doing the right thing. So, so I think people need to, think about how they are best used in any of those tasks and there's you know there's kind of uh, say the research task which which will come very naturally to, to academics or faculty staff but there's the how do you get this through the research ethics committee how who do you need to pull on board to to champion this work being done how, how does the committee structure work where do you need to pull in people from across the university from counseling services from student support from security from do you need to get a steering group together to help you with doing the research because then if you do that you'll have buy-in for the results of the research if they've been part of developing it so that i think there are lots of ways that we can learn from people's experiences about how to how to do it um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one person has to do it all 
I think it's about uh, deciding where your strengths lie and 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 being committed to doing to doing those things and bringing other people on who've got the strengths in the other areas. Catherine, I think one of the areas that we're curious about as we think about the work that you've documented in your chapter and sort of thinking about the bigger picture of activism on campuses is sort of understanding what's in it for faculty who do this work why and and others uh, other kinds of staff as you mentioned that you captured in your study as well what is it that that is the reward or the the, the value of of doing the work for us because um, on its face, it's it's complicated, it's labor-intensive, it doesn't always garner one a lot of esteem from one's colleagues or perhaps from, from the upper administration. So what did you learn about why we persist and, and what rewards or benefits it brings for us? Why is anybody a feminist? Um, I think what we get out of it is the sense that we're doing something that could affect change that could transform the organization and by extension society. This is why people do it. I mean, there are, you know, obviously there are, there can be occupational rewards. There can be that uh, you produce the outputs and you disseminate and you design an impact related intervention. You, you prove it to be effective. You, you know, the, and there can be occupational rewards as a result of that promotion or prestige status of course those things can also be there but I'm not sure that would be another study wouldn't it I'm not sure that's the motivating set of factors that underlie why they do it why we do it I think it's a commitment to wanting social change wanting to challenge inequalities of power, structural inequalities of power and how those structural inequalities of power translate into inequalities of power in personal relationships and and the satisfaction that you can get from seeing incremental change and feeling that you've been a part of that, a small part, but a part of making it better, transforming it. On that inspirational note... (laughs) I want to say thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for the insights you've shared. It's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to to talk about it. Really interesting work, and we appreciate so much that you documented it and and we can help Mm. others learn from it. So thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We hope it sparked off some ideas for your work to end gender-based violence in higher education, whether that's research work, activism, or work in an administrative role in higher education. If you'd like to engage more, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com where you can listen to the next episode of this podcast.